0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 20. If you turn there once again... Today we're going to continue the introduction to the Ten Commandments. These are God's moral law. They are the codification of the law that God has already written upon the human heart. From the time that you were very small and not able to speak, your, your mother and your father began to teach you the difference between right and wrong. And I think maybe the first word that we remember as we were growing up is a word that we were very resistant to and we didn't like, and that is the word "no." Seems like everything that we wanted was addressed, or was answered, I guess, by the word "no." A few weeks ago, I saw in my many, many grandchildren how much they hate the word "no." And sometimes when you tell them no, they get in the mode of throwing a little tantrum, which they very quickly regret that they ever did. But as children, we we really didn't understand no. We didn't like no. And we didn't know that our parents actually know more than we know. Uh, Sometimes no was just a way of keeping us from hurting ourselves. But then at other times... It was to teach us the difference in the choices that we make, differences between right and wrong. And each of us grows up with a resistance to anything that actually keeps us from doing the thing that we want to do. And each of us are faced with moral decisions, deciding which things are right and wrong. And sometimes those things are difficult for us because people have various opinions about what the standard of right and wrong should be. What is right and what is wrong? Is there a a, a dependable authority that sets the standard for how we judge the difference between right and wrong? Is that something that's left to our subjective opinions to decide? Or is there something that we have that removes all the doubt about what we should do? Well, that's what I want to look at today. Our text is verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 20, which says, "...and God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now in chapter 19, Israel was at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they were being prepared by God to receive the law that would establish them as a nation. Now when our nation was founded, uh, it wasn't truly a nation until our founding fathers had crafted a document, a constitution of laws that would specifically state how we are to be governed. We are a nation of laws, and we can't truly call ourselves a nation until there is a government with laws that are enforced upon us that tell us, those who are part of the nation, that tell us how that we can treat each other. What can I do to you? What can you do to me? What are the laws by which we live? Israel could not become a nation until they had law. Now before they were slaves in Egypt, they'd just come from Egypt, but they'd escaped that bondage and while they were there they were under the laws of the Egyptians. But the Egyptian law is not binding on them any longer. There is no authority for the Egyptian law, there is no enforcement of Egyptian law. And so to become a nation, a nation before God, they needed an authority to enforce law upon them. And instead of Moses and Aaron and the elders of the people becoming the authority and crafting some kind of a document, a constitution by which they might live, that was done by God himself. God gave his people a law, and his government was different from any that has existed before or any since. uh, At any time, they were a nation under the law of Almighty God who is the Sovereign. There were different types of laws that were given on Mount Sinai. There were ceremonial laws that had to do with worship, how Israel was to worship the one true God. There were laws about health and hygiene. Those were laws given as separating laws that divided them from the rest of the people of the world and sanctified them apart from other nations. But the most important laws that Israel was given were the ones that governed their morality. These are the laws that are known as the Ten Commandments. And they are timeless laws. They are laws that never cease to be a moral compass for the difference between right and wrong for all people of all time. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, these are laws that were already written on the human heart. But then at Sinai, those laws were written on tablets of stone by the finger of God. And these are the laws by which God will judge all people. Several weeks ago, I was talking to a young man who argued that the Bible has many mistakes. And he said that perhaps there was a time when we had the Word from God, but in all these years since it's been given, uh, it's been mistranslated. There are problems with it. There are mistakes. And so we can't be certain that what we have is truly God's Word. So I ask him, if that is true, then, then then, what is the standard of morality? Who is to decide what is right and wrong? And his response to me was that society determines the difference between right and wrong, and that right and wrong are subjective according to our opinions. Well, his opinion was one that definitely says no to God. And in fact, it seems like the only time that we like the word no is when we say no to God. God. Right and wrong cannot be based upon the subjective opinions of people. It can't be determined by popularity polls. Morality cannot be determined by ad campaigns and the agenda that's pushed by the news media. Our moral problems that we have today in our country are anchored in that fallacious method We can't depend upon our subjective opinions to tell us what morality is, the difference between right and wrong. Instead, right and wrong are set in stone, so to speak. They're written with the finger of God. And so morality and righteousness is anchored in the one who is the rock of ages, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, in other words, what I'm saying is that the basis of the commandments are God himself. That God is a holy and righteous God, and therefore the laws that God gives are holy and righteous laws. God is the one who knows the heart of man, He is the Creator. His knowledge of what man is is found, or what man is, is found in the one who made him, and we don't know God unless we submit ourselves to His authority. Well, this chapter is filled with God's own revelation of His law. He spoke it. The code. Of law, this law, has been the basis for laws made in every civilization in the world. At Sinai, God visibly wrote on stone what he invisibly wrote upon the human heart. And the only thing that we see differently here is that God spoke audibly, and then he wrote visibly. In the the codification of the law in stone, what God did was to clarify. He fine-tuned the inherent knowledge that we have. He sort of filed off all those rough edges of things that we don't understand, things that couldn't be clearly understood, and he wrote them down so there can be no mistake. And so what God did was to take the guesswork out of this so that we don't have to argue about what we should and shouldn't do. The law is the constitution of humanity. Now Paul explained that though the light of conscience is obscured by sin, yet there is still enough understanding in all of us to know that we are without excuse. God wrote the law in stone, and what he did was to double down the impermissibility of excuse. Right and wrong become confused only when we subject it to our opinions. Now that's what I argue with this young man, um, Opinions are always self-serving. Always self-serving. Your opinions are about self-interest, and too often self-interest conflicts with the needs and the good of others. And so if you want to condense all of this, of what the Bible says about morality and the difference between right and wrong, it comes down to this. How How do we love and respect others? And I think that you know the code word for that. The code word is in 90% of the songs that are written today, although it's hardly understood. And that word is love. And whether you know this or not, the commandments are not a force of hard restrictions upon us, but these are actually God's directions about love. A popular song a few years ago had the title, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. That song is true, although they never... To find what true love actually is now if you want to know if you want to find out what true love is you have to look at the Ten Commandments because this is what love looks like in fact the person that most people would consider the most loving person that the world has ever seen is Jesus Christ and he reduced these Ten Commandments to two propositions thou shalt what love the Lord thy God and thou shalt love the Thy neighbor as thyself. That's the whole law. It's all about love. Now you don't need to worry about analyzing that statement. And trying to figure out. Is there another purpose for the Ten Commandments? Oh this is it. This is only it. God gave the commandments to show us love. And to define for us what true love is. I want you to think for a moment about two young people. That go out on a date. There's a young man who turns to his girlfriend. And he says to her I love you. And then he begins to recite to her the Ten Commandments. Well, you would say, that's crazy. I mean, that is the least romantic person I've ever heard of. Who would ever do something like that on a date? But if he did, he would be telling her exactly what love is. He, If he loves her, he's going to follow the Ten Commandments. He'll keep his hands off of her. He'll try to keep himself pure. If he really loves her, he'll choose right over wrong in all of his dealings that he has with her, because that's what God says that love is. Love is doing right by another person. Do you understand? Who could argue that God doesn't know what love is? How could we do that? Thou shalt not steal, because you don't steal from people that you love. Thou shalt not murder anyone, because you don't kill people that you love. And contrary to what many people think today, thou shalt not commit adultery because you don't defile the people that you love. Well, the world is filled with songs about love, but they don't know anything about love. What they know about is illicit sex. That is not love. 1 Corinthians 13 is often called the love chapter, even even though I think that uh, Exodus chapter 20 ought to have that designation. And uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that love bears with another person. He said love is kind. Love is not envious. He said love doesn't boast itself. Love doesn't put itself above others. Love does not behave badly. And love does not think of evil. And he said love is not self-serving. Now Paul simply oppressed or expressed in different terms what God says here in Exodus chapter 20. Now you think about that and then you consider who is it that's served in this adulterous society that we live in? What is it that people want? Well, they always want what makes them feel good. People are always interested in satisfying their desires. And so that's when two young people, why when two young people go out on a date, they start to put their hands all over each other. And then they start to, to go a little bit further than that. And that's why a man or a woman will have an adulterous affair with someone at work because they seek to satisfy self rather than how it's going to affect those other people and destroy other lives if they do it. They're always thinking about self. Is that love? No, it's not. And that's why the Bible has to define it for us. This is why God gave us Ten Commandments, because He is a God of love, which He exemplified in the greatest way possible by giving His Son to die for our sins. It was the most self-sacrificing thing that could be done, and God did it because of love. Now, as we study these commandments, we'll see how God shows His love for mankind by giving us a standard. And if we do not deviate from the standard, then we will have a society of love and honor and respect. And we won't feel oppressed by the law that God has given, but we will be liberated by this law into the greatest joy that we could ever experience. And that's because the law teaches us to have the best welfare for others at heart. If you don't deviate from the law, you have good society. Now I want you to notice first today what a huge place that God's law has in the scriptures now if we're talking about love the Bible says that God is love doesn't it say that God is love so you would expect that this is what God is his word would be filled with uh, with love and in fact we find that the word of God is filled with commandments keeping commandments and You read the Word of God and you find that expressed in many different ways. So first of all, I want to talk to you about that. How so many ways that the Word of God expresses this. Different terms that it uses for it. So number one in your outline today is the word appellations. The appellations of the law. Now that's not, since we don't have it on the board, it's not appellations like the mountains. It's appellations, A-P-E-L-L-A-T-I-O-N-S. The appellations, the names of the law. Well, it's it's talked about in many different ways in the scripture of course we see it here in this particular study that we're talking about it's known as the ten commandments that's one way that the word of god expresses it it's known as the ten commandments and in, in hebrew that comes out as the ten words and that that terminology is significant because it's known all over the world nobody ever asked well which commandments do you mean when you say Commandments, well, what commandments are you talking about? Ten commandments, what are those? No, they know that, that at least civilized people know that you're talking about the word that God gave. And if there are some that don't understand it, there may be some. But even people like the Muslims have ten commandments. They're not worded exactly the same, but they cover the very same issues. If you look at the ten commandments in the Greek translation, the second thing that we would see is that, that it's called the Decalogue. Sometimes you'll hear me talk about the commandments, and I refer to them as the Decalogue. Exodus 34, verse 28 says, And write upon the tables of the covenant the ten commandments. In Hebrew, the literal translation of that is ten words. In Deuteronomy four, thirteen, it says, And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform even ten commandments, and wrote them upon two tables of stone. The Greek Old Testament would read, Even ten. The Decalogue, that God wrote the Decalogue on tablets of stone. And then thirdly, the law of God is called the Words of the Covenant. You can see that description in Exodus thirty-four twenty-eight. that God wrote on tables of stone the Words of the Covenant. And the Covenant is the Ten Commandments. And I want you to notice that word covenant. It's a very important Bible word. It means a league. It means a compact. It means an agreement between two parties. And so what God did was to make a, a, a uh, with Israel a compact, an agreement with them. If, if you look over there in the 19th chapter in verse 5, we studied this a couple of weeks ago. Here is the agreement between God and Israel. Now therefore, God says, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now the covenant, the law, that is a pact between God and Israel in which he said, I will be my God and you will be my people if you keep the covenant. And so these are the laws that made them a nation under God. They would do his will and then they would receive his blessings. Fourthly, the law is known as the words of the Lord. In the first verse of this text, God spoke these words. Exodus 34, verse 27, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. Now whenever you see these terms in Scripture, words of God, the words that God speaks, the words of the Lord, you think of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. And then he went on to quote the Ten Commandments. The Word and the commandments are the same. Fifthly, we see in the Bible that the law is referred to as the testimony. God called it the testimony when he commanded Moses to put the tables of of stone into the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark then became known as the Ark of the Testimony, because that's the place where the law of God was kept. In the Psalms, we also see that. It's called the testimony. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 78, verse number 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. And then you'll listen to this command in psalm 132 verse 12 a promise if thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that i shall teach them their children shall also sit upon thy throne ever evermore then isaiah wrote isaiah eight sixteen bind up the testimony the law among my disciples sixthly the law of god is known as tables of stone exodus Twenty-four, verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount, and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone, and a law, and commandments, which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. Deuteronomy 9, verse 10. And the Lord delivered me unto uh, delivered unto me two tables of stone, written with the finger of God, and on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake with you in the mount, out of the midst of fire in the day of the assembly. So any time that anyone referred to tables of stone, that reference is to the law of God. And then finally, let me just give you one more. The most common terminology that we find in the New Testament is simply this. The law is called the commandments. Matthew nineteen seventeen, Jesus said unto them, and he said unto them, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. In multiple books of the New Testament, they are called the commandments. My, my life verse is 1 John three twenty two, which says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, many years ago, I claimed that verse when I was in a serious time of trouble, and I combined it with Romans eight twenty eight because I saw those things working together that God... That God works in the lives of those who believe in him. That all things work together for our good. Why? Because we are people of his commandments. We keep his commandments. Now do you see that the term commandments is actually etched into our brains. If I say to you keep the commandments you don't have to have an explanation of that. You know what I mean. Nobody says which commandments which ones are you referring to. Oh, they know that you're referring to the commandments of God. They also know there's something sacred about those commandments. Even though they don't care to keep them, they do know this is something that came from God. They recognize that term, commandments. And it used to be that as Christians, we could rattle them off. Oh, we knew all ten. From the first to the last, we knew all ten of the Ten Commandments. I suppose that if I were to ask many of you today, quote the Ten Commandments for me, you wouldn't be able to do it. Some of you might not even be able to find the reference for it if I hadn't already told you that it was Exodus 20. We used to know those things, but we don't anymore. But still, if I say commandments, or you say that to just about anybody that's walking the streets, we need to keep the commandments or anything about that, they know which commandments that you're talking about. So these are commandments that are given by God, given by the only one who is the Lord of the law. Now secondly, I'd like you to notice today, the author of the law. And I think that this, this part is truly fascinating. If you look at verse number 1, it says, And God spake all these words. God spoke. Don't you find that fascinating? God spoke. Now in other places we read that God spoke through the prophets. The prophets were inspired with words of God And when they opened their mouths to speak to the people, it's as if God was speaking to them. It is the word of God, but it was the voice of the prophet. In chapter ten, God spoke to Moses, or chapter nineteen rather, God spoke to Moses, and, and then in turn Moses spoke to the people. And when God called Moses out of Midian to go and speak to the people of Israel and to speak to Pharaoh, it was actually Aaron that spoke for Moses, and Moses spoke for God, but that was the voice of Aaron. That's the voice of Moses, not the voice of God. Now, in the break that we have between chapters 19 and 20, Moses stopped talking for God. And in chapter 20, it says, God spoke. Now, you might think that that still means, well, that actually means that Moses is still speaking for God, but let's find out differently. If you look down verses 18 and 19 of the text, It says, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. Then verse 22. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. So they Heard from God, but they didn't want to hear God speak. Oh, Deafening thunder, streaks of lightning across the sky, angelic trumpets that they heard, a mountain that's on fire with smoke and earthquakes. They didn't want to hear God speak. They were afraid of what God spoke, and so they said, Moses, don't let God speak to us. You, you speak to us in the place of God. And that surely shows us what a special man that Moses was, that was, that Moses could hear from God and listen to hear God's voice and not be afraid. At least in this sense, there was fear and trembling when he heard from God, but God enabled him to hear that voice. And Moses listened and Moses was able to relate what God said to the people. He's unlike any other man because God says, He's the only one that I speak to face to face. But the people didn't like it. They wanted Moses to shield them from the voice of God. Now this is just remarkable. He is the author of the law and these words come from the Almighty God. He's on the mountain. He's in these earthquakes. And the voice of God heard from the mountain was a terrifying voice. And as I read that, I wondered, how did God speak? What did they actually hear? And so these things crossed my mind. And what language did God speak and how did God speak? So first I asked the question or talk about the method of God speaking. How did he do it? If God spoke, what is the language that he used? Well, you can probably guess where I'm going with this. If we were charismatic, we might say that God spoke in a heavenly language. It was an ecstatic language. And perhaps I might try to demonstrate that for you. And I would rattle off some sort of gibberish. Maybe I would get down on the carpet here and crawl around and bark like a dog. And then some of you might get in the spirit and then you would begin to do a lot of gibberish too. And you'd get down on the floor and you'd roll around a little bit and laugh hysterically with Holy Ghost laughter. I can assure you when these people heard from God, they weren't laughing. There's no laughter here. Nobody barked like a dog when God spoke to them. Now, they were terrified enough they might have left a few puddles on the carpet, but they, uh, but they didn't speak in some kind of an unknown tongue. No, God spoke, and what God spoke was understandable. Now, nowhere in the Scriptures do we ever see God speaking anything but human language. These are words that people could understand. And I have no doubt that what God spoke to them at this time was in the Hebrew. Man was made in the image of God. And so do you wonder why Adam did not speak to God in a heavenly language? Now before the flood, the whole world was of one language. They all spoke human language. And when God spoke to them, God always spoke in human language. And I don't know what the particular language of heaven is, but I know that man was made in God's image, and so the language of heaven must be a human language because that's the way that God communicates with us. There isn't a different language that God uses. When John saw into heaven there in the book of Revelation, he carried on conversations with angels. And not once did John say, I need somebody to translate for me. I don't understand a word they're saying. No, John understood what they said. He carried on conversation. Then he wrote down what was said in the Greek language because that was the common language of the time. So God spoke. The people understood. They didn't like the sound of it. They were frightened by it. But they understood it. Now, secondly, this gets a little bit more complicated because now we think about the medium of God speaking. God is spirit. Isn't that right? Jesus said, God is spirit. Those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Well, sounds of language are made by the vibration of vocal cords. But God is spirit. God doesn't have vocal cords. And so in some way, God caused a vibration in the air and he spoke. Or God could have, if he wanted to, he he just made instant sound waves out of nothing. But as we think about that, there's an interesting question that comes up when we look at other scriptures concerning this. How did God speak? How did people actually hear God? And we might find an answer to that in other places. There's an interesting place in Hebrews that we might look. Now, while I'm talking, you might want to look at Hebrews chapter 2 for just a minute, and we'll get there. The author is speaking in Hebrews about the superiority of Christ over angels. And and he proceeds step by step explaining how that Christ is superior in everything. That Christ tops everything. He's ahead of the angels. He's higher than the law. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. And better than Melchizedek. He's better than the Levites. He's better than the sacrifices. And it seems that in the midst of all of this. He just makes a a kind of a passing reference to Sinai. In Hebrews chapter 2. Now let let me point out first that, that, that angels are exceedingly powerful. Angels are not. Baby cupids with arrows that are dipped in love potion. A few weeks ago, I was speaking, uh, years ago, I guess it was, I was speaking with someone who had a family member that had recently died. And this person said to me, Now heaven has another angel. And it's not uncommon for people to believe that when you die, you become an angel. And they've got this Hollywood idea that you get on a probationary period when you go to heaven. And after the probation period is over, you gain your wings, you're granted your wings, and then you become one of God's angels. If you think that way, maybe you need to check your understanding of some other Bible doctrines because you might not actually be going to heaven anyway. But no, we don't become angels. The Bible teaches us that we become like Christ. We're made like Christ. Heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are the children of God. We are higher than angels. And the book of Hebrews is explaining all of this, that how Christ is higher than angels. The Bible says we're going to receive an inheritance when we get to heaven, an inheritance that angels don't have. But in any case, we still understand this, that angels are very powerful. On one night, there was an angel, one angel, that killed 185,000 Syrian soldiers. There was an angel that was about to destroy Jerusalem, one angel. And David interceded to God that he wouldn't. And Hebrews says that Christ is superior to angels. Now notice how he makes the comparison. He's speaking of angels and the words that they speak. And he says that those words that they spoke bound people to be punished for breaking what they said. And then he said how much more that you should listen to the words of Christ because he's greater than angels. Now if angels are powerful enough to destroy thousands of men in an instant for disobedience... And Christ is more powerful than the angels. Do you want to be found trifling with the words of Christ? When Christ says, keep the commandments, do you want to be found saying, I don't think so. I don't think that I need to do that. Oh, if you listen to the word of angels, how much more should you listen to the words of Jesus Christ? Now, what's the author's reference to the words that angels spoke? Look at verses 2 and 3. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first begun to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard them? Now hold on to that for just a minute, and and just be thinking about that, and I want to put it with another verse. Acts 7, verses 52 and 53. This is Stephen speaking to the Sanhedrin which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted and they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers who received listen who received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it one more verse galatians 3:19 Wherefore, then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to who the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, let's put all of that together. When angels speak, the only thing that they are permitted to speak are the words of God. Angels don't have a personal agenda. Now, according to Hebrews, the words that the angels spoke were steadfast, and it says there that every transgression of their words receives a just recompense of reward. In other words, it says the punishment fits the crime. Doesn't that sound like he's referring to the law? Acts 7.53 says the prophets received what? They received the law by the dispensation of angels. And then Galatians 3.19 seems to nail it all down when it says that the law was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. Who is that mediator? Well, that refers to Moses, the one who brought the law down from Mount Sinai. So what are we to conclude by the mention of the law and the mediator combined with angels? Well, verse 1 of our text says, God spoke, and it could very well be, that the medium through which God spoke was angels. Oh, they could hear the voice of angels. Angels often appeared in a form of men to be seen and heard. But whether we know the answer to that or not, how that it was done, here is the most important point that we get out of it, that regardless of how it happened, it's important to know that God communicates with us. As high and holy as God is... He stops to talk to men. Psalm 8 verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him. And the son of man that thou visited him. Who are we that God should speak to us. Who are we that God should take notice of us. And then come to us. We're nothing. And that shows us the love, love and compassion of God. That God. Did not fry us with the law from Mount Sinai. But instead he sent us a redeemer to shield us from his relentless justice. Now remember this and never forget it. That God communicates with us. And it's only on the basis of his law. He loves us. And God's love is shown in the law. And so we are very confused when we say. Well the law is our enemy. And if we trust our own ability to keep it, it certainly is our enemy. But if we use the law lawfully, that is, we understand that it's a warning against us to call out for the mercy and the grace of God to save us, to save us as helpless sinners, then the law becomes our best friend. That shows how God loves us. He gave us the law to show us how desperately we need to cry out to be saved from it. He reveals who Jesus Christ is. The perfection of the law. Now notice again these divisions of the law. They're about love. Love God. Love your fellow man. It teaches us to love God supremely. And why? Well we let God speak to us on that subject in 1 John 4.19. We love Him because He first loved us. God spoke to us. He gave us commandments. And He gave us them out of love To teach us how to love him. And how to live. And how to be content and enjoy living. Job 5.17 says. Behold happy is the man. Whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou. The chastening of the almighty. And so when God says no. When he says don't do this. Be happy about it. Be happy that God tells you no. Because then he's just saved you. From hurting yourself. He's just saved you from hurting other people. And so when the law says, No, God is saving you from yourself. And not just in a temporal way, what you do to other people. He's saving you from the consequences of the bad that you do. It's an eternal thing. Psalm 19, verse 8, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The law doesn't hurt you. It's always going to help you if you know Christ. You don't want to abandon the law because of God's grace. No, you want to embrace the law because it shows you how to love God back. Now let me make just a final point about the author of the law. The author still communicates with us. He communicates with us through the preservation of the law so that we can sit here today and we can read it and rejoice in what God says. You are not going to hear God in an audible voice. You are not going to hear God in an angelic voice. You will hear him as he speaks in his word. You will hear Him as you read His Word. You will hear Him as I stand before you and read His Word. That is God speaking. And it's the only way that God speaks to us today. He speaks through the written Word that He's given us in the Bible. Now that young man that I talked to was wrong. God still speaks. I don't have to guess at what to do. You don't have to guess about God's will. You don't have to guess about your morality. You don't have to guess about which way that you ought to go. You don't have to guess about what is right and wrong. And that's because the answers are right here in God's Word. And God still speaks to us as surely and powerfully as He spoke from Mount Sinai. This is the Word given on Sinai. And He is the author of all the words of Scripture. Peter wrote, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Paul wrote, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, or 1, yes, 2.13, for this cause we thank God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is the word of God, which effectually worketh in you that believe. I want you to remember that God loves us so much that he spoke to us. And he spoke to us clearly. We don't have to guess. We don't have to doubt about what he says to us. He tells you how to live. He tells you how to love. He tells you how to receive eternal life. And to be in heaven with him. And if you trust God, and if you're content to wait, you will see God visibly. And you will hear God audibly. And now you ought to rejoice that God is the Lord of the law. That's how we understand who God really is. And how we learn to love him and to love each other. So we respect the law of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we come to you now thanking you for this law that you have given. You didn't give it to hurt us. You didn't give us to, give it to make us miserable in our lives. You gave this to us to make us happy, content Christians who know how to love you and to love each other. Lord, as we enter into the study of these great commandments that you've given, give us light of your word. We thank you, God, that you spoke to us. We thank you, Father, that you still speak to us. All we need to do is to pick up this Bible and to read. And we have faithfully recorded your words that you have preserved for us to hear. Lord, help us to love your law. Even as the psalmist said, I love your law, O Lord. Help us today. We thank you for this wonderful day that you've given us. And for the baptism that we're about to experience. To witness. To see people who love you and want to dedicate themselves to you. And that's what the law teaches us to do. Obey the commandments, even to be baptized. You spoke that to us as well. Thank you, Lord. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.